I found myself this morning uh, at church with a tie on, as Jeremy calls it, a necktie. So I figured I would, I would have to preach in Crossroads this morning. Uh, I'm kidding, but uh, I am overjoyed to be with you this morning and to bring God's word. I hope that the word we have from the book of James this morning uh, will be helpful and challenging to you as you begin a new semester. There are two words that haunt the human soul to its very core. You don't see them or say them very often, but when they come into your life, they scream for your attention. They will cause you stress, they will alter your schedule, and cause you enough trouble that you'll certainly want to take these two words Seriously, ultimately, if you ignore these two words, the problem will only get worse. I, I really hope you don't have the displeasure of seeing these two words anytime soon on your dashboard. Those two words, check engine. Check engine. Maybe instead you've got the little orange icon that looks like a weird water faucet. It's actually a, an engine. But you know it just the same. Check engine. This little light induces in us a sigh-inducing sort of anxiety because, well, there goes your Saturday morning and there goes your coffee fund for the next two weeks or boba fund if you prefer. Our passage This morning is a check engine light of sorts. We can go ahead right now and do a reverse altar call. If you leave in the next five minutes, we know your problem. You can go ahead. You and I, we can have an understanding later. Uh, Take care of that check engine light. Uh, But our passage is a sort of check engine light for the heart problem that is our selfish ambition. Our passage this morning, Lord willing, will be of great challenge and hope and help as you begin a new quarter or a semester. And so if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to the book of James. James chapter 4 will be in verses 13 to 17. This passage before us looks at something intensely personal to us. It's about how we think about our future, how we plan, how we view ourselves, and how we view our lives. And it points to the deeply rooted problem in this, and that is our selfish ambition. God, via James, will help us turn over some unturned stones this morning that are our pride in how we think about life, our tendency to think that our success And our failures are solely up to us. For some of you, maybe your selfish ambition is a little less ambitious outwardly. It's just a modest middle class assumption. The right amount of money allocated to the right things, invested in the right ways, is all you need. A selfish ambition that instead of feeding your pride, feeds your comfort and gives you a a sense of false security. You see, although you may not have that million-dollar home by age 30 that you can host Bible study at, 
you can still very well solve all of life's little problems. And so maybe your selfish ambition is a little bit more modest. But deep down, whatever way it is, at the core of whatever your exact line of thinking is about the future, the walls of the human heart are lined with selfish ambition, James says, in how we think about the future. There is an inherent independence and autonomy, a desire to stand on one's own two feet. Crossroads, we have a deeply rooted belief that the future is up to us. The great skeleton in the closet of Western Christianity is this compartmentalization of selfish ambition, a hall pass to surrender your life to Jesus, except for your career ambitions and life plans, because that's how you'll provide for your family, right? Or that's just your basic needs, right? We read passages like this and write them off all the time because we just think, okay, here it goes again, the Bible telling me to give up everything, give up my rights, go live like a monk. This kind of passage, admittedly, is no fun for our hearts, but it's so needed, especially in a ministry like ours where you are literally determining your direction in these moments and in these seasons. You are deciding your career Uh, Some of you more so your major, uh, but you are deciding where in life you'll go, whether it's a city or a career or some echelon in life that you're aiming for. Crossroads, we should rather have this check engine light come on now than for us to never be warned about total engine failure down the road. And this morning, God's word will confront our pride and show us a path forward in this, a path surrendered to his will. So look at James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, and follow as I read our passage. James, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and Spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Father, as we come to your word, we see our need. We know it will only be by your spirit's work that will be changed. Father, you've given us your son, and so how will you not also graciously give us all things, all we need for life and for godliness. And so, God, we ask, grant us much grace. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of James shows us faith in action. The book of James shows us as a whole that true saving faith is a faith 
lived out. True faith, James says, trusts God amidst trials. True faith does not show favoritism, but instead loves others with the generous love of God. A true faith tames its tongue. True faith seeks the wisdom of God instead of the wisdom of the world. True faith rejects the world's riches and seeks heavenly riches instead. Uh, the main idea of James, look there in James chapter 1, verse 22, is this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James tells us true faith is a faith lived out. And in our text this morning, we find great help as to how those with true faith think and believe about the future. We'll see in our text this morning that true faith looks humbly to the future through the lens of God's will. And we'll see three steps to submit our hearts to God's will. The first of those steps is this in verses 13 and 14. Acknowledge your presumptuous planning. Acknowledge your presumptuous planning. First here in our text, we see James wants us to examine our plans, our aspirations, our dreams, our ideas about the future. We need to see the presumptuous thinking in our planning, the false assumptions we might be making as we think about the future. Look again at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now James is addressing a particular group of people in these churches that he is writing to, a group of merchants in these congregations. And these merchants, who are an exemplar of all of us, relate their plans out loud with seemingly relative uncertainty. They say, today or tomorrow. But these merchants have absolute certainty in the fact that the future is up to them. You see, it is going to be today or tomorrow. And we will go to such and such a town and we will make a profit. Now is James condemning weather forecasts or 401ks or life insurance or New Year's resolutions? No, you see, James isn't saying not to plan. He's not saying to throw away the bullet journal or delete your GCAL this morning. James is saying the way you plan, the certainty you have as you think about where you'll be this year or in a year or five years from now or classic ten years from now, the confidence you have in yourself to make that happen. That is the problem. The problem isn't the planning. It's the heart behind presumptuous planning. It's selfish ambition. Now, it's not so much what is said here. It's what is not 
said here that's problematic. You see, what is not said, what is not acknowledged, what is not considered here, or rather, who is not considered here, is God. The problem with the presumptuous planning of our hearts is that it's a godless endeavor. Even if you're not much of a college football fan, you probably know what the Heisman Trophy is. We've already talked about it once in this service. Look at us. And you know what the Heisman Trophy is because you've seen it before, whether you know it or not. It's the trophy given every year to the most outstanding player in all of college football. Not most valuable, political correctness, but most outstanding player. The trophy is a sculpture of a player posed with his right foot forward, turned to his right with the football tucked into his left arm. And his right arm, brothers, do it with me, outstretched, ready to push any would-be tacklers out of the way. This is what is called for the uncultured, I mean uninformed, (laughs) the stiff arm. It's a defensive position for an offensive, an offensive player, a poised to fend off anyone getting in the way of a touchdown run. This is the picture of our verse 13 planning, our presumptuous thinking about how things should go as we look into the future. It's a defensive position we take in our hearts, poised to fend off anyone, even God himself, anyone who's getting in the way of our plans and our goals and our ambitions. You see, as we consider our plans, our time frame, our profit margins, we stiff arm God. Because it's our abilities, the potential letters added after our names, our potential income, the statistical likelihoods for us, the housing market for what kind of house we want, the resale value on eBay or the tax implications. All those things to us are a higher priority than the God who determines and gives us all of those things. We are driven, crossroads, in our life decision-making more by our emotions, our heart's desires, our bucket list, our getting to the next level, even our fears and our insecurities, far more than our consideration of God in our plans. And verse 14 shows us exactly how it is that we are being presumptuous. Look there. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that vanishes uh, excuse me, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. There are two things James points out in this verse that we presume upon. First, James points out that we presume upon the certainty of our future, that we have unwarranted confidence. We plan, we think, and we act as if we know with certainty what will happen to us. As a fact, we do not know what tomorrow will bring. Even in the relative stability of life in Los Angeles, and yes, even in Santa Clarita. I mean, come on. 
stability. See, as humans, there is a limit to our knowledge and abilities. We like to think that we know what's up with life. We are planners and executors of the greatest kind. We find security and satisfaction in setting out to do things and then getting them done and checking them off our lists. We apply to things and get in and get into the second option and get into the third option and then pretend it's a hard decision between the first and the third all because we know what's up with life. But the bottom line is you just don't know. And James here is saying you are being presumptuous. You are assuming too much in your selfishly ambitious heart if you are so sure about your future. Proverbs 27.1 echoes what James is saying here. It says there, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. Secondly, also in verse 14, we see our presumption upon the safety and the security of our lives. We fail to acknowledge the fragility or the frailty of life. Look at the second half of verse 14 again. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It's been cold lately, like really cold for Los Angeles. And the best temperature gauge before the Apple Watch was a thing was to go outside at night and what? (sighs) Breathe. And if it's cold, you can see your breath, right? And if it's really cold, like it's been, 45 degrees, your breath will linger for even a second longer than you're used to seeing. But then it's gone. Whether it's your breath or the morning mist, because science, something happens, it's here one second and gone the next. This is imagery found throughout Scripture, a a mist or fog that burns off. In other instances in Scripture, smoke that is dispersed by the wind. Uh, consider these passages, all imagery that depicts the brevity of life. Job 7, 7, life is a breath. Psalm 39, 5, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Or Psalm 102, verse 3, for my days pass away like smoke. Crossroads Life expectancy numbers should tell you your life is one-fourth over. And yet you feel like a million bucks. Your whole future is ahead of you. And that is exactly the discrepancy James is pointing out here. You see, whether your inability to know what tomorrow brings or hear your lack of understanding of the brevity of life, there are aspects of life, the uncertainties, the unknowables, the contingencies that you treat in your presumptuous pride like facts. With our lives, we construct our own Tower of Babel. We know exactly how long it's going to take to build. We know how tall it's going to be. We know how long we're going to be in the penthouse suite. And yet the Word of God here this morning 
is saying to us, we know nothing of the sort. The irony is that while we know nothing about tomorrow, God knows all. While we live a life that is but a vapor, God is the eternal God. When we presumptuously plan about the future, we act like we are God who does know tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. And only he knows and will be faithfully who he is every day all the way into eternity future. For some of you, James is the first person to ever tell you to check yourself in this. You've grown up all your life being told, you can do this. Believe in yourself. Just study, work hard, go to practice. Some of you surround your people with people, surround yourself with people who tell you yes all the time, who enable you, who encourage you. Others of you just save your money and eat your vegetables. You're going to be great. Yet James is saying, no matter what you do, however savvy or smart or successful you are, it does not matter if you do life apart from the living God. And so we must first acknowledge our presumptuous planning. We've got to be aware of it and admit that we've got a problem. Secondly, in our passage, we see in verse 15, uh, the second step, anchor yourself on God's sovereign will. Anchor yourself on God's sovereign will. Instead of the stiff arm, uh, autonomous attitude we see in verses 13 and 14, here in verse 15, we see how we ought to instead submit to the will of God as we consider the future. We need to, friends, anchor our hearts on God's will instead of floating freely on our own. Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Here, James gives the simple alternative to the presumptuous approach in the last few verses. It's not complicated. Here we see true faith bows the knee before the sovereign will of God. James has already said in chapter 4 several things that are quite similar. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. Submit yourselves therefore to God. And then in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And here James is saying in verse 15, the same thing. If the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. First, if the Lord wills, we will live. We ought not to skip over that. Even life itself, that mist that appears and then vanishes, is not presumed upon here. We know so well that God graciously gives us spiritual life. 
He's made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We know that fact so well. He has given us spiritual life. Amen and amen. But we must not forget, He also gives us physical life. We must recognize what Paul says in Acts 17 at Athens, that God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and that in him we live and move and have our being, and we must submit to the will of God. We must consider the truth that Daniel pointed out to King Belshazzar as he warned him about his pride to acknowledge God in whose hand is your breath. And we must submit to the will of God. We must echo the truth that Job speaks throughout the book of Job. In chapter 10, he says, You have granted me life and steadfast love. In chapter 33, he says, The breath of the Almighty gives me life. And we must consider those truths and then submit to the will of God. We must worship with a keen Psalm 139 awareness that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God and that he formed our inward parts. He knitted us together in the womb. And we must submit to the will of God. The submission to God starts in acknowledging that life and sustenance come from him and from him alone. It's why you're accustomed to praying before every meal. You see, you pray not because you need to bless the slice of dead cow on your plate. You pray because it's a natural, everyday, one or two or three times a day kind of way to pause and recognize that God provides Jehovah Jireh. He provides both the meal on the table and the very life that that meal sustains. James here in the second half of verse 15 points out that it's not only by God's will or God's power that you live, physically speaking. He's saying it's also the case for everything you do. Look at verse 15 again. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see, if we will live, we live by the will of God. And if we do this or that by that same will of God, his provision and his power will let us do what we set our hands to do. Whatever we do from life to eternal life, it is if and as the Lord wills. That's something we've got to understand as young people. This isn't just that you have your own will and God has his and then you run yours through God's and then you do what's left over, whatever he allows you to do. This is active submission. This is a willingness, a posture in your heart to align your will with his and a desire to weed out the things you realize you must in everything you endeavor to do, in your career, in your dating, in your ministry even, 
you ought to submit it in your heart to the Lord. This is Proverbs 16.9, a familiar verse. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We ought to have that kind of recognition found in Proverbs 16. If you've been in the church any length of time, you've had the pain of having friends or families you know who have gone through a health trial. Even in the past couple of years in Crossroads, we've had a few families like that in our leadership. And you've seen these families or these friends go through the health trial and uh, it is painful to even walk alongside those families in silence. And God grows those families in their faith and God uses them by his grace as a model for suffering well. But it's in those raw moments you see these kinds of families face the reality that they are literally at the mercy of God, moment by moment, every breath by the mercy of God, every beep of the monitor by the mercy of God. There is this bare bones realization that it is actually and literally God's will be done in these moments. That if the Lord wills, the child will get better. If the Lord wills, the cancer will go into remission. If the Lord wills, the surgery will be successful. Now as a young person, you may feel impervious to these kinds of trials. But there will be very soon and soon enough, times when you are forced as well, whether by health trial or by humiliation or by failure or by financial situation, to recognize that your very next step and everyone after that must be only if the Lord wills. It is in those moments of full clarity when this truth, this willingness to seek the will of God starts to make so much sense. The logic becomes so clear. But why is it that it takes moments like these, moments of clarity for us to see that? Now I believe, at least in part, it's God's providence in instructing us in the school of life. And he is kind to us and he cares for us and he shows us through. But that doesn't have to be always. This morning, by God's grace, he is showing us through his word. When the skies are sunny and your health checks out and you've got big plans to be places and to do things and get that bread, the truths of his word are just the same. It's in him that you live and that you move and that you have your being. And so if you are saved by him, by grace through faith and the redeeming work of his son, you ought to day by day by day drink from the same fountain of grace by bringing your plans and your dreams and your ambitions before the one who saved you. Submit your will to the sovereign will of God. 
The third step we see in this passage as we consider our futures is found in verses 16 and 17. And that step is this. Address your willful arrogance. Address your willful arrogance. Look at verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. While in verse 15, James points out how we should respond, we're not there yet. We don't quite live in humble submission to God's will the way that we should. We just heard that, so we're not there yet. James is saying, as it is, as it is right now, you boast in your arrogance. And so don't move on too quickly. As you are right now in your seat, as you now think about your future, James is saying you boast in your arrogance, whether with your words or not. You know where you're headed and it's gotten gotten to your head. And instead of repenting from this arrogance, at least the believers that James is writing to, these believers dig in. Isn't that where we are sometimes? You make up your mind about something, about what you want to do, and then you go and do it, or you go and decide, let's, let's tell somebody about it. You make a call, and the moment you realize when you're talking to somebody, it sounds so foolish, and you've realized you made the wrong call. And in your stubbornness, in that moment, you are fundamentally unwilling to admit that you're wrong. You'd rather dig in and defend your position than admit you're wrong. You'd rather excuse and and justify what you've got going on than to stop and consider where you might have gone wrong. You would rather dig in than consider it's maybe better to make a U-turn somewhere soon. This kind of boasting in our pride, this pride in our pride, James says, is sin. James gives us the principle in verse 17. Look there again. So whoever knows the right thing to do and f- fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, this is how we often define what we call a sin of omission, right? In our gospel presentations, uh, we talk about James four seventeen as the sin of omission, a kind of sin. Every sin is one of two things, right? Something we do even though God says we shouldn't, or something we don't do even though God says that we should. James 4.17, right? A good one to tuck away for your gospel presentation on Bruin Walk. Well, here in context, this is more than just a simple sin of omission, This is more than just not doing something we're supposed to do. This is knowing full well that God wants us to submit our wills, submit our plans, submit our future to him, and then making a purposeful decision not to do so. There is stubborn pride here that needs to be addressed in our hearts. It's a denial of, a defiance to God's instruction here. 
I wonder whether, whether there is a coldness or a lack of receptivity to God and His Word as we consider this passage this morning. Now, in the court systems, there is a concept, a provision called willful ignorance or willful blindness. It's a category of law or provision meant to address those who deny culpability for a crime by claiming ignorance for something that they're clearly guilty for. It's the means by which the court, the court can reject the I didn't know the gun was in my hand defense. Or it's how the court can still give a ticket to the green F-150 parked in the green vehicles only spot. Or it's how they nail the person who thought that the white substance was sugar. In willful ignorance, there really is no actual ignorance of any kind. James is saying here, we are guilty of willful pride. We are guilty open and shut case of willful arrogance. No actual ignorance of any kind, but willful, intentional withholding of our submission to him. The call to obedience is clear here in verse 15. We must humble ourselves before the Lord and submit our wills to him, the God who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble but we withhold our obedience to him. It it must not be so this morning. So uh, how do we address our willful pride in how we think about our futures? Uh, What does it mean practically to acknowledge our presumptuous planning, to anchor ourselves to God's will and address our willful pride? Well, we've seen the Check engine light, it's bright orange this morning. Now we need to find the right solution. We don't need more gas. We don't need wiper fluid. We don't need more air in the tires. We need something for the engine. We've got to acknowledge first that this is not just acting unsure of yourself all the time. Or pretending to be or actually being insecure about what might happen. Constantly second-guessing the future as if there is some sort of true humility to be found in, in that. Because in fact, the very key to submitting to God's will is certainty. It's certainty. It involves a foundation of steadfast surety, of confidence, not in ourselves and what we can make happen for our future, but in the only sure thing we have on this side of glory, and that is salvation in Jesus Christ. Salvation that is signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. 
You see, as your assurance in your eternal future is to you ever more sure, your certainty about the short-term future on this earth and your striving after that kind of certainty begins to fade. It begins to pale in comparison. And you begin to live and do what you do carefully and humbly and faithfully if the Lord wills. Now I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at some practical helps, some elements to the solution of our selfish ambition engine problem. The first is this. It's really point number one. It's examination. It's acknowledgement. Repentance even, where appropriate, of where your will might not align with or where your will might be antithetical to God's. This is radical rejection of the world's value system. And then a worshipful adoption of God's values and priorities. It's a refusal of self-glorification and a heart determination to then live for God's glory. You see, when you live in light of eternity, you begin to take God and his priorities seriously. And you live not simply for the successes and satisfactions of this life, but instead you begin to prioritize and even enjoy those things you used to, but in context to eternity. And yet inevitably there are things and goals and numbers and plans that you begin to loosen your grip on. So instead of this tightly fisted plan that you have for your future, you begin to peel your fingers back and hold your career path and your finances and your future with an open hand and one open toward God. The second practical thing we can do is to seek God's will in his word. God's will for the Christian is not so much a future with exact contingencies planned out. God's will for the Christian doesn't always have a schedule or a timetable that is obvious to us. And actually, sometimes that's a good thing for our character and patience. God's will for the Christian more often than not is character and commitments that reflect his character and commitments. As you do what it is that he has wired you or gifted you or given you a desire to do, you can find his character and his commitments in his word. And as you read, especially in the New Testament, you will find with increasing clarity that God's will is revealed and carried out primarily through the church. He he has promised to build his church in and through Christ. And, And so you see that priority in the scriptures. 
And you'll also see as you read God's word that the primary purpose of that will in the church is the great commission that God's name would be known among the nations, not yours or mine or anyone else's, but that God would be worshipped by every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And so as we read God's word and tune our hearts to his will, anything and everything in life begins to head heavenward. And as those who are his people, his will for you becomes obvious in his word. It's your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4. It's that you give thanks in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5. It's that you love and serve and care for one another. It's that you not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and so much more. In his kind provision, it's his Word, the scriptures, the very word of God that lend us tremendous wisdom and help and hope in understanding the future and his will for our lives. A third thing you can do to practically consider these truths is to involve others. Involve others who will help you see your blind spots and weaknesses. This is, again, the importance of the church, the people of God, in your life as a young person, as you figure this thing out that's called life. Some of you have never had people around you who can challenge you and tell it to you straight. People who will tell you when you're being cocky. Or people who will ask you the hard questions about why you're doing what you're doing. Get those people. They're right here. They're sitting around you. Talk to them. Open yourself up. Share your heart on why you're doing what you're doing in life. Share your insecurities and expose your own soul a little bit. And then look to God's word together. And apply wisdom. Some of you already meet with people, but you don't ask questions. You're not thinking through your future and God's will with a posture that knows it doesn't know. You just talk about yourself and you wait for the other person to pounce. But because they're so gracious, they don't say anything. And so you assume all is well. That's not how it works. You need to share, but you need to ask questions. And you need to ask questions of God's word. What would you have me do, O oh God? And you need to ask of others what you don't know, what you might be missing. And then again, look to God's word together. Lastly, and most importantly, prayer. Prayer is daily, overt, an intentional submission. We must, both in concept and in reality, pray the prayer that the Lord taught the disciples. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If we want to rid ourselves of selfish ambition in regards to the future, we must pray ourselves into submission. I'm going to close in just a minute or two here, but I want to give us a a few moments after I pray to reflect and to pray in your hearts and submit your wills to God even this morning. And just to set a foundation for what we've heard in this passage, that we should live life day by day, actively submitting our wills to a good God. And so we'll do that in just a moment. Crossroads, in this passage, we've seen the plan to go from city to city is this presumptuous endeavor to accomplish one's own will. Many of you will indeed go to different places and cities and even churches someday. Well, for the Christian, the endeavor to go from city to city or job to job or one station in life to another ought to be a humble endeavor, not a presumptuous one, a humble endeavor. We ought to be willingly, willfully reliant on the strength and the direction of God, desirous most of all that his will be done on earth through his glorious gospel. And we ought to be grateful for whatever part you or I might have in that. Let's pray to that end, and then we'll take a moment. Father, thank you for your word, for in it we find life. We find life in your son, life redeemed, life restored, and eternal life first and foremost. But we find life under your will as we progress along this pilgrim journey. And so, Father, be kind to us, we ask. Would your spirit work in our lives? Because we know that's the only way that change like this can happen. Slow and steady, but beginning only with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so by the blood of Christ, we look to you and on his merit alone, and we trust you, a sovereign God, a good God, a kind God, And we ask now, Father, that as we reflect, that you would help us to get on our knees in our hearts and to really do work with you even this morning. And as we go forth this semester, Father, help us too, we ask. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.